This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to another episode of Late Boomers. Today, we are excited to have as our special guest, Les Brown Jr., leader of the famous big band that his father founded in 1938, the Les Brown Band of Renown. And I'm Mary Elkins. Les has worn many hats, including being a successful actor, musician, business manager, concert producer and promoter, TV producer, and as you said, Kathy, leader of the Les Brown Band of Renown. Welcome, Les. After all that, I should be pretty tired. <laughs> <Thank you guys. laughs> yes, welcome. Your, your father, Les Brown Sr., was a major celebrity in his day working with the likes of Doris Day, Bob Hope, Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra. You grew up surrounded by these people singing around your piano. Tell us about your early life. Well, you know, it, 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 Kathy, at the time, it was just my life. You don't think much <laughs> about it when you're a little guy, you know. People would come over to the house, and I remember uh, we'd have George Shearing there and Joe Stafford, Margaret Whiting, Peggy Lee, and just what, people like that. And I'd sit there and, until it was my bedtime and listen to them. You know, they'd have a cocktail, some drinks, and it was just amazing. But, you know, it's amazing to me now, looking back on it, how uh, privileged I was and what a blessing it was to, to be able to experience that. And, uh, yeah, it, it uh, was amazing from all aspects. And there were a lot of other people, too, actors that were uh, part of it that would come in and love to sing, but they were not primarily singers. And so everybody just had a good time. It was very friendly. Do you think that started your career off as an actor and musician? Because I know you began your career as an actor, and you were fortunate enough to have a contract with CBS and ABC. So we'd love to hear about that, but talk a little about how you were influenced by all that first. Well, well you know, I mean, I, I, I did a couple of the Bob Hope uh, Christmas tours. And Bob was very generous in allowing me to do some of the skits with him when I was just a kid. And uh, I remember one in particular, uh, we were in the uh, Sahara Desert. Uh, with uh, Ann Miller and I was in this skit with her and a wind came up and it started to blow the set over on us and I just happened to catch it and she <laughs> was so impressed she said boy that son of yours Les he saved my life and I said I did you know I mean it was just one of those things I happened to be there at the right time so I, I was always pretty comfortable on stage I made my debut if you will uh, as a performer 
when I was 13 at the Hollywood Palladium with Dad playing with the band, playing clarinet. So, oh. Hmm. You know. And the other and then, thing about those... Go ahead. And then tell us about the acting, though. Well, okay. Cut to now... During school, summer vacations is when Dad could go on the road because Bob was on hiatus from radio and from television. And everybody was on hiatus, so he'd do 12 weeks on the road, and I'd go out on the road with him. I went out first as a drummer and then as a singer. And then after I got back from Duke University, where I went to school, uh, I said, you know what? I don't think I want to compete with my father as a musician in music. I think what I'd like to do is find another field. And I was pretty comfortable being on stage and acting. So I said, Dad said to me, you know, now you're home and you're out of college, what are you going to do? And I went, uh, uh, I'm going to be an actor. You're crazy. And I said, yes, okay. <laughs> and it wasn't before maybe six months after that that I got the contact. But the way it happened was uh, I, I was playing a little club on Sunset Boulevard with a trio. Uh, a guy named Dave Perrin was the uh, piano player. And we had various bass players, and I was the drummer. And Dave's dad was Nat Perrin, who used to write for the Marx Brothers. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he was the producer of Death Valley Days. And he mentioned, because I was over at Dave's house all the time, he says, you know, I got a part for a kid who's like a juvenile delinquent thing back in the old west and would you want to read for it? And I said, sure. So I came in and I read for it, and I got the part. It was a two-part series. So, you know, and then after that, I, I went to CBS, uh, High Aberback, of course, who was the announcer on the Bob Hope show. Uh, he was working with Gertrude Berg and Cedric Hardwick on Gertrude Berg's television show. They hired me, and I did two of those, okay? So one thing just led to another. The next thing you know, uh, the way I was chosen for CBS uh, contract stuff was I went, I just got a call. My agent was Meyer Mishkin, who was a wonderful little sheriff, great guy. And he called me, he says, they want you out of CBS uh, on Beverly. And they want you to bring a bathing suit and two changes of clothes that you're going to read with some I said, what for? He says, I don't know. <laughs> so I went out there and I read, and I read with uh, Joanna Pettit, among others, you know, a couple of people. And the next thing I know, he told me, well, you're going to be a resident juvenile for CBS. And I said, what does that mean? He says, anything between like 18 to 23, 24, you're going to be on it. You're going to be in the show, whatever it is. Um, and I said, wow. I later found out the way they chose me, they had it all broadcast, closed circuit to all the secretaries and the bathing suit shot. They chose me. So I said, <laughs> Lucky me. You know? <laughs> so, well, they knew who to ask. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, who told me it was uh, Jim Aubrey, who was, of course, the head of CBS around that time. And then one thing led to another, and I did a series for them with Judy Karn and Paul Ford. You know, just a whole bunch of shows. My Three Sons, Gunsmoke, uh, uh, 
the one that I can't live down is Gilligan's Island. Oh, what were you on Gilligan's Island? I never missed it. There, there, there was a rock and roll band that came on to the island called the Mosquitoes. Mm. And the Mosquitoes was made up of me and the Wellingtons, who did the uh, theme of Gilligan's mm. Island. Oh, I love that. So I was the actor, so I had all the lines. And the other guys, we'd get up and play. And uh, the thing was, we thought it was a remote island, and we could go out there and rehearse for our new island, not thinking anybody was living there. So a helicopter dropped us there and left, and we were stuck there for a certain amount of time to be able to rehearse. The segment is called Don't Bug the Mosquito. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so fun. Yeah. What, what, so that's, is that the one you said you can't live that one down? Is that like one of your favorite things? I wouldn't say it was one of my favorite things. Uh, You know, at that time, Gilligan's actors kind of went, oh, gosh, do I have to be on that show? You know, it wasn't, it was popular (laughs) with people, but not popular with actors. It was so farcical, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but when I say I can't live it down, of all the TV shows I did and all of the TV movies I did, that one is still being shown. In fact, the lady, the uh, wife, the person that was working on my deck recently, saw it just the other night. So it's still being played. And I'm out there in a wig and all that stuff. And my name was Bongo. And for some reason, even my, my grandkids see it now. And they go, Grandpa. My gosh, you had such long hair. And I said, no, it was a wig. <laughs> later, later, I had long hair. Though. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sure all the guys did. And But from acting, yeah. you segued into music management and managed some of the biggest musicians of the 60s. So what prompted that transition? And tell us about those days. Well, well two things. You know, I wasn't real comfortable being an actor. And... Part of the reason was, and I'll try to explain this, in a, my dad, when he was working with Bob Hope, and they first started to do television, the band was on screen with him. And dad said, you know, Bob, I want to be in the pit. I don't want to be on, you know, behind you on screen. And Bob said, what are you, crazy? This is television. You have to be seen. Dad said, well, you know, I don't want to have to live like you. I want to be able to go out and have dinner and not be bothered. Everybody knows my name, but I'm not that recognizable unless somebody has been to a ballroom and remember what I look like, you know, that kind of thing. And so anyway, I started to get into that when I was, now I'm like 22, 23, 24, and I'd go to the market. And if, you know, I played a lot of bad guys, you know, young bad guys. And ladies would come up to me in the market and they'd go, you know, you're really a bad guy. I think you should be a, if you don't do what you're going to do. And I'd go, that isn't me. <laughs> That's the part I'm playing. And, they, you know, television <laughs> is an interesting thing. They, they believe what they see on there. You know, and that's why so many people on television get typecast, you know, as one thing or another. And mm-hmm. uh, so... But the great thing about it that I loved so much was, was the education I got. Because I had the run of Studio Center. 
I could ride the cameras, which is the old Mitchell head with the big camera on it instead of the mm-hmm. little stuff we have today. And it was all film in those days, very little tape. And I learned editing. I learned scoring. I learned how to put music onto it. I learned how to do effects. I learned all that stuff when I was there. And so the education it gave me as a producer was uh, something I could never get if I hadn't been an actor. All I had to do is, you know, go out there, learn the lines, and be believable to be an actor if they were happy with it. Certainly I was, you know. I mean, my gosh, I was 24, 1965, 66. I was making way too much money even then, even though it doesn't compare to what they make today. But comparatively back then, it was a lot of money. And getting uh, paid to do that was just a blessing. And then uh, later on, how I morphed into music again was because uh, they had that thing when rock and roll started. Don't trust anybody over 30. Yeah. Well, I had, I had practically grown up in recording studios. And uh, so a lot of the rockers, I got to know some of the rock and roll guys. And... Uh, they said, well, you know a lot about music and you know a lot about, you know, recording. Will you come and be our producer? And I said, sure. You know, so I went in and I started producing uh, rock and roll records, much to the chagrin of my father, who was very threatened oh, by rock and roll. I bet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So an era. Which, which acts yeah. were you producing? Well, some of them you wouldn't know because it wasn't like I had instant hits. You know, it's not that mm-hmm. uh, I've used, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think, a group called uh, Cleveland Wrecking Company and stuff like that. But what it did was uh, most people, they, they like the recordings, and you can't tell what's going to be a hit. So I joined a company called International Management Combine, IMC, uh, at 6430 Sunset, which is made up of four people. Leonard Potcher, who was a manager, uh, Bill Lowe, who had been an agent for, uh, uh, what was it, MCA, and he had to leave the agency when they broke it up because they had Universal, and Neely Plum, who had been one of the great A&R men at Capitol, and I came in to look over the rock division, the whole thing, so under that, now we had a contract, or Lenny did actually, with... uh, all the English groups uh, in the when they come to the U.S. and that was uh, Donovan, uh, Jethro Tull, um, Traffic, you know, all these great acts, and uh, I got to work with them. And then uh, GRT Tapes came in and they gave us a label and recorded some stuff with them, uh, and that was great fun. Uh, Neely and our company produced. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, the soundtrack album. Zipparelli's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, and, right. Uh, that was Neely, gorgeous. Yeah. Neely actually did uh, The Sound of Music, too, the album. Oh. But Robert Wise was the only one that got credited as the producer of anything having to do with The Sound of Music. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I did that for, for a number of years. And then. Uh, I went over to another company that brought me over called uh, Goldust Productions. <clears throat> and they, I did some stuff with Jerry McGee, who had been one of the, uh, oh gosh, what was the name of that group? It was a famous guitar group. 
Um, great, great act. I mean, he, he was just a marvelous musician. But they decided they wanted to try to do some uh, some concert promotion. And I had worked uh, with uh, Bob Eubanks as a consultant because I knew how to produce shows. And Bob, you know, it, it was, was the promoter of the shows, but was a disc jockey, so he could promote that on the air. And then I'd go out and do the lighting, the sound, and everything for all the acts that he was just promoting. And uh, we did, oh my gosh, Neil Young, Three Dog Night, Loggins and Messina, uh, Merle Haggard. We took the country from saloons into, well, they weren't performing arts centers. They were, they were really just uh, civic auditorium, you know. So, but it got them out. So they were working in front of a, a seated audience at that time mm. with all the production that goes with it. And I did that for him with him for a number of years plus we got the contract to do the rock and roll shows in las vegas and uh, i did a bunch of those and i can't even remember all the acts i worked with there and, uh, that was uh, leading into my question about the acts you worked with when you were at gold dust production can you tell us about some of the acts you worked with or do you have any fun stories about them yeah i wish i did you know the thing about it, when you're doing the production of it and everything, you're so busy, you say hello, and that's about it. There's one. Yeah, I know that when Neil Young went out as a solo, I hope Neil doesn't kill me for this, uh, but after Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, we did his first concert at the Forum, and he had just released uh, the big album, oh, I can't remember the name right now, his wonderful oh, uh, Gold Dust or Gold Rush, I think, after the Gold yeah, Rush. Yeah, that's like right, that. yeah, Remember? Gold Rush. Yeah, and uh, so we had it all set up, and we had a sellout crowd, I think, with 15, 16,000 people, and uh, Deal shows up, and he's back in the dressing room, and just a little bit before the show, I went back there, and I, I said, we're about ready, is everything okay? And he said, No! No, it's not okay. I said, what's wrong? He says, I'm not going on. I said, what's wrong? He says, the wine is not the right temperature. Oh, no. Said, oh, I see. I'll tell you what. Okay, I'll go out and tell 15,000 people that you're not going to perform today because the wine is the right temperature. And I started to walk out. And the next thing I knew, a wine bottle hit the wall right next to me. And I went, whoa. And I walked out, and John Hartman, who was, uh, worked for David Geffen and all of them, he was uh, Phil Hartman's older brother. He said, what was that? And I said, I think Neil threw a bottle of wine at me. He said, what? And I said, yeah, the wine wasn't the right. I said, he must just be nervous. He says, I'll take care of it. And he went in, of course, he went on and everything. That's one story. And you bought him another bottle of wine, huh? Oh, instantly. Sure. You know, you always have to make the uh, artist happy, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Any I other know fun stories about anyone else? Well, uh, you know, I don't know the audience you have here. I, I have a lot of stories. Some of them are a little racy, <laughs> you know. Oh, we don't, <laughs> we don't mind. We don't mind. I mean, I... I afterwards, I was working with Skip Taylor, and Skip had uh, canned meat. If you remember that? 
Love candy. You know, going up the country, yeah. And we signed Booker T. We're managing Booker T, if you remember him. Yes. And, uh, oh, this, yeah, the best part. I have been producing a group for Warner Brothers called the Mojo Men. And uh, at one point, uh, this is during the San Francisco days, Columbia sent me up to San Francisco to listen to a group at the uh, Family Dog, not at, at the other one. The Family Dog, was, which was Chet Helm's place. And uh, I went in, but the act they wanted me to see was Santana. And the act that preceded them was called Beautiful Day. Do you remember oh, yeah. that? Yeah. The with the violin. And I flipped out for, for them. I said, wow, that's a very musical and wonderful group with the violin and rock and roll. How cool is that? And then Santana came out and... You know, they were a bunch of conga drums and this and that, and they didn't hear any hit songs or anything like that. So I passed on Santana, and I said, I want Beautiful Day. And they said, well, you can't have them. They're already taken. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to pass on Santana. So then when I went up to do the next album with, uh, with the Mojo Men, and we recorded that in uh, down, a little bit down the peninsula where they had a studio, very nice studio. So I was walking in to start our first session and I'm walking by the dubbing room and I hear, you gotta stop your evil ways, baby. And I went, who's that? And they said, ah, some group named Santana. And I walked in the dubbing room and I listened to the whole album. And I said, hang man, had my finger on the pulse of that one, didn't I? Totally <laughs> but later on, as I say, when we had Booker T, we got a call from Santana and said, we want Booker T to come and be our opening act on the San on the uh, Abraxas tour. You know, Abraxas was probably their biggest album. And so I was on the road with them, with Booker. I was playing drums with Booker and, uh, and Santana and... Uh, I know my bio said at one point I worked with Carlos Santana. Well, I didn't work with Carlos as a producer. I worked on the tour with Booker T, which was the opening act. And, of course, Booker was a big-time opening act, too. But, boy, what a time we had on that trip. Oh, man, it was, it was incredible. Nice guys, great musicians, great uh, fun. Uh, of course, it was uh, a lot of cocaine, a lot of... I'm not a... I was never a pot smoker. Uh, a lot of tequila, all of it after the show, but that was enough to put you under, bam, you know. And when I came home, shortly thereafter, I got sober, and that was it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you but, were a wild uh, yeah, rock and roller, huh? I was a wild rock and roller, you know, as they said, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, it cost me my first marriage. Oh. Huh. Well, I, I I got a beautiful daughter out of it, and uh, Kathy and I are still wonderful friends. And uh, well, not so much. I mean, in between in between that that time uh, with Santana and everything, I I had produced uh, some shows for PBS. I did the Titanic, uh, a Titanic special. I did a Bob Hope special for them. I did uh, variety shows, and I also did a series that was really the first reality series that 
was on TV that was a big hit. And it came to me through a distributor, a syndicator, rather, that I knew. And I had done a couple of shows with him. And he called me and says, oh, Les, I'm in trouble. I got a network thing that I got to put on TV. And it, I told him about police cases. This is when dash cams first started. And I said, what do I know about police cases? I don't know anything. He says, well, help me out here. Come on, let me, let, you can do this. And I said, oh, let me see what we got. So I hired a couple of interns, paid interns. And I told them, I'll tell you what. Call all the sheriff's departments and all the highway patrols you can think of, state troopers, all around the country, and see if they have dash cams. And if they do, see if they keep it on tape and what they want for those tapes if we want to use it. So three or four days into it, I said, how are you doing, girls? What's happening? And they said, oh, they're sending all the tapes to us right now. I said, really? What do they want for it? They said, nothing. They just said it. I said, well, that's interesting. Here I have all the material. All I have to do is edit it and get it done. So I did the first show. And uh, I hired my <laughs> surrogate son, if you would, a young musician named Blake, uh, Blake uh, Worrell, who was living with me. And he was one of these techno musicians. And he was doing all this techno stuff all the time in the house. And uh, so he was doing the music. And I did the voiceover on it. And the voiceover on it was very simple. You know, you'd see this guy driving the car, and the police are chasing him. You're watching the dash cam. And then he goes, and he loses control, and he hits a tree. And you see that in real time. And then, in real time, you'd see it in slow motion. You'd go, let's see that again. You know? And bang, they see it again. And I got a call, and they said, Les, we had a problem with uh, some of the voiceover. And I said, what happened? They said, we couldn't lay it back, and we had to send it up on the bird so they could uh, play it. And I said, oh, my gosh. Well, do it. So anyway, I came home. The show aired on that Sunday. And we didn't have, you know, cell phones and all, you know. So the fax machine started to go off. And I started to look at it, and of course, it gave you the your ratings every 15 minutes. And we started growing, 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 growing. We beat that other show, David DeCuffney's show. And my agency called me, and they said, did you see that? And I said, yeah, what do you think happened? He says, I don't know, but we got a whole series to do now. Get ready. <laughs> yeah, one of the early reality TV shows. Right? Yeah. Well, I finally figured out that it was the it, it was the uh, lack of voiceover that made it a hit. People thought they were watching the real thing. And oh. it had music under it had music under it, but they didn't pay any attention to the music, you know. <laughs> yeah, so we but did, we, I also wanted to know about. Uh, your recording and TV and live productions for, for your dad's band. Mm -hmm. What happened well, with that? Dad, dad called me and he said, look, you know, we're still in the uh, 19th century, or, you know, early 20th <laughs> century with our production. And of course, he, he was used to playing dances for so many years, all right? Mm -hmm. He says, now we're playing concerts and I need some help. 
I need some help with sound and lights and production and all that stuff, and I'm not a producer. You are. So I came back in, and uh, that's what I did. I, I upgraded all the sound, lights, and uh, put together a show that was an actual show, not just a bunch of dance tunes and stuff like that that had a theme, a string running through it and all that. And it was very successful for a number of years. And, uh, you know, I when at one point, as he started to get older, um, I would do some of those concerts. And, and the, the thing was, I said, look, Dad, any of the ones you want to do, you come and do. And I'll take the back seat, and I'll just be the boys' singer. And then the other one, I'll do the show. And, you know, I, I kind of designed it not just to be about him, but to be about the era. Mm-hmm. Celebrate mm-hmm. the great man. Celebrate Glenn Miller, yourself, uh, Tommy Dorsey. Because, you know, they were all, the Dorsey brothers and my dad were all from the same area in Pennsylvania. And had known each other for years. My grandfather and the Dorsey brothers' father had a band together back there. Oh. You know, my dad knew your dad at Duke University. He went there when your dad was there. Yeah, and I'm sure your dad was playing music. I know your dad was playing music on campus at the time. My dad was always a singer, so I don't know if they did anything musically together. But, hey, maybe they were in choir together or something. I don't know. Well, let me tell you, uh, that, that's an interesting story about my dad, actually, because in those days, uh, this was after, uh, shortly after the First World War, my dad was about 15 years old, and uh, the next door, the kid next door to him went to Ithaca Conservatory of Music and called my grandfather. Now, my dad had been a soloist on saxophone, and various reed instruments. Very early on, he had a tremendous talent for it. And my grandfather, who was a baker by trade, taught all the kids how to play instruments. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, this kid knew that my dad could play bassoon. And he called uh, my grandfather and said, you think Les would be interested in coming to Ithaca Conservatory uh, as a bassoon player? And my grandfather said, well, he hasn't even gone to high school. And they said, well, it's he, that's okay, because they have a program here that is that was designed for um, veterans, First World War veterans that hadn't graduated high school, but it isn't spelled out that they had to be a veteran. So, my, you know, my dad, uh, my grandfather went to my dad and said, would you be interested in joining him at the Ithaca Conservatory? Well, my dad hated working in the bakery. So, you know, you have to get up at four in the morning and go, go into that. And he said, when do I go? You know, and all that. So anyway, my grandfather bought him a bassoon. He went off to Ithaca Conservatory, and he got his music education there. He was the youngest student they ever had. And uh, then he got a, a scholarship during the Depression to New York Military Academy, which is a very upscale at that time uh, preparatory school for, you know, all the great colleges. Well, it turned out he, he was the valedictorian of that school because he'd already gone to college. You know. And he was playing, when you did that at that military school, if you were the head guy, you got an automatic appointment to West Point. So he thought he was going to go to West Point. He was playing a summer job at a lake 
in uh, in uh, New Jersey called Lake Mohawk, and uh, on the other side of the lake, or one of the lakes close by, and the band from Duke University was playing. So they came over and they saw him, and they saw that he could play. You know what a great outfit! And they said, "Hey, would you be interested in coming to Duke?" And he said, "Well, yeah, but you know, I got a free ride to uh, to the academy." And he says. I'll tell you what, we'll get you a free ride to Duke if you come there. He said, done. You know, wow. so he went to Duke the first year that he was there. The band leader was Nick Lacey. He was a football here. And a uh, personal guy, very nice guy, didn't know anything about music. So dad started writing all the arrangements for the band and doing all that stuff. The second year after Nick graduated, they elected him band leader. And he'd play every day at five o'clock in the student unit. And that's how he got his free ride. And then one night on a weekend, you know, they'd go out and play, play a roadhouse somewhere off campus. And Eli Oberstein, who was the head of uh, uh, Bluebird Records, was driving back to New York from North Carolina uh, where he was vacationing. And he saw all these cars parked at this roadhouse. And he went in, and he heard the band, and he said, are you the leader of the band? And Dad said, well, yeah, I, I am. He said, would you guys be interested in coming to New York? I'm going to sign you to a record contract. And he said, well, I mean, we're still in school. I'm going to have to ask the guys. He said, well, you got to make up your mind. So he asked the band, and they all said, yeah, let's go to New York. I think they took a really good leap of faith. It's they, really good. They did. Oh, they did. Oh, but they I bet did. they got yeah. a great, they got some great recordings, I bet. And they still got a great education. Yeah. Yeah, they did, actually. They, you know, a lot of the guys went back, but the, some of them, you know, they stayed with the band. Dad, what he did, the ones that went back, he worked as an arranger for Isham Jones, who was a great band leader, and Jimmy Dorsey, who he knew from Pennsylvania. And uh, then he reformed the band uh, under the wing of MCA. Because in those days, the band leaders very often didn't own their band. The agency did. Oh. They would give the band leader a salary, and they supplied music arrangements, uh, all those fans, uniforms, the bus, all of that stuff, and they'd book the tours, and they'd pay the leader a salary. And Dad did that for a couple of years. And then Joe Glazer, I don't know if you ever heard that. Joe was a remarkable man. He uh, was the agent manager to started Associated Booking Corporation, ABC. And uh, Joe had Louis, Louis Armstrong and a lot of the you know, the uh, bands of color at that time. Well, he liked my dad very much. So he said, I'll tell you what, Les, I'm going to buy your contract from MCA. And when you make, when I get my money back from what I pay for you, you know, and the band, then it's going to be your band, but I'm going to be your agent in perpetuity forever. Dad said, you've got a deal. A year and a half later, Dad had sentimental journey, and he paid him off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he, I know he didn't expect that. Yeah. 
That's a great, great story. Uh, but let's talk back. Let's talk about you again. Uh, you're, you have so yeah, much okay. wonderful history that m- has made up your genes. Let's talk about your TV production work and about some of the sh- other shows that you've produced. Well, again, you know, I, I get calls uh, from uh, from this uh, syndicator. It's a guy who used to work for Aaron Spelman. He syndicated Aaron's show. Jesse Weatherby is his name. And Jesse make a deal somewhere, and he'd call me, and he says, okay, we got to produce a show about the Titanic. And I said, oh, all right, that's easy enough. You know, so they were documentaries and things like that. And then I did, uh, I did a show... Uh, Bob Hope, Hollywood's brightest star, because Bob was very unusual. You know, he was the only entertainer, especially at that time, who had been number one in all areas of entertainment, from vaudeville, radio, TV, records, believe it or not, and movies, records with uh, buttons and bows. Um, So that was the gist of that story and and i did a documentary on that that i still think pbs plays uh, around the country at least people tell me they see it i did another one (laughs) that was on dinosaurs of hollywood now it wasn't old (laughs) actors (laughs) it was it was the actual physical things like the first king kong and claymation and harryhausen if you know who he was Sure. You know, all the guys that used the early production on that, I did a whole special on that. And that was such a, I love that genre anyway, and to see how they did it. And of course, he had a museum in Hollywood, and I got to go in there and shoot all this stuff. And uh, it was, oh, that was great fun. And then Music Variety, I did a, a show called uh, Swing Alive at the Hollywood Palladium that had my dad's band, it had Bob and Dolores Hope, both of them, Suzanne Summers, Sheena Easton, uh, Kid Creole in the Coconuts, uh, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli, or not Bucky, uh, what's his name, his son, uh, John Pizzarelli, he's a great musician, uh, the uh, Bus Boys, my gosh, who else? Oh, and Brian Setzer and his big band, and that was a fun show to do, and then I went to see a show here in Branson with a a country artist named Neil McCoy. And Neil had been Entertainer of the Year and had some wonderful songs. uh, And he was a very good singer and he loved big band music. I didn't know that at the time. And he recognized me. So afterwards, he asked me if I'd come backstage. And I did. He said, boy, I would do anything to work with your band. And I said, you know what? I think I could arrange that. So I went back to PBS and I said, you know what, how would you think about a country artist who meets big band and we do his hit with the big band vibe and then he he does some big band songs too. And they thought I was totally nuts. We did the special, went on PBS, did very well. And I remember Jamie uh, from PBS after the show when we first did it. The two of us were backstage alone after all the pictures, and she said, you know, I didn't know how you were going to pull this off, but you did. And I said, Jamie, I didn't either, but it worked, you know. Yeah. So those are the, the interesting thing about that show is Neil never worked 
from the set list, he'd ask the audience, what do you want to hear? And they'd tell him, and he'd do it, and I said, you can't do that on TV. So we worked out a little deal with all the songs we were going to do, and he didn't know what was coming up. So I had to tell him, and I worked out a little thing where, you know, uh, I kind of gave him a hint, and he'd get it, and he loved it. That broke him up, you know. And you produced also a CD to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Les Brown Band of Renown. Tell us about that and about the other groups you've produced anniversary recordings for. Okay. In that case, you know, I, it was hard to believe. His 60th anniversary yeah. was coming up. And he had done 54 albums, okay, and various singles, needless to say. So a company called Doc Hollywood approached me and they said, we'd love to be a part of this. So I called Al Schmidt. I don't know if you know Al or who he is. He's a great engineer producer. And we had worked together in rock and roll days and everything. And he goes back to Sam Cooke. He produces his, uh, he did Natalie Cole and, uh, you know, Nat Cole was unforgettable. He was the engineer oh, on that. Sure. He's won, he's won 23 Grammys as an engineer. And hmm. he's just one of the sweetest men in the world. And I said, uh, we're going to do a 60th anniversary tribute to Dad. And he says, oh, man, that's terrific. So I had been on a plane going somewhere, and I, you know, they have the magazine there, and I was listening to stuff, and that, whoop, I think I just turned off my head. Anyway, I was listening to stuff, and I heard Jane Monheim with just a little trio. Do you know who she is? Yes. Yes, yeah, she's a terrific singer. She was only about 20. And uh, I thought, man, if anybody's going to come on and, you know, do Sentimental Journey, like Doris, she's the one. So uh, I called her manager when I got off the plane, and I said, would you be interested in coming? She was in New York to L.A. and uh, do um, Secret Love and, uh, and Sentimental Journey. And she said, oh, absolutely. So they came out, and, and then Lou Rawls, who had been on a summer replacement show for Dean Martin with the band, I called Lou, and I said, hey, Lou, we're going to do a tribute to my dad. Would you come on? And he says, absolutely. Now, Lou and myself and a singer named Gene McDaniel, 100 Pounds of Clay, I don't know if you remember Oh, that. yeah. And he wrote some great songs, like Feel Like Making Love and all those great things. We used to hang together when we were kids in, in uh, Hollywood, you know, trying to get a start <laughs> doing all that stuff. But anyway, so Lou came on and did it too, and we did that album, and that was great fun. That led to that TV special I told you, uh, Swing Alive, the Hollywood Palladium. And at that time, there was a tremendous resurgence in swing dancing. Do you re remember what was going on down at the Derby? Did you ever hear about that? Where all the kids would dress in the, the 40 suits and they go have the swing dance. Oh, Royal Crown Review was on that show with me too. And I went down and saw them at this club, and it was an old brown derby that they had turned into this new 40s dance thing. And I mean, it was just jammed with kids. So we. Uh, so around what year? With around what year are you talking? That was '94, I believe. Oh, about okay. 94, 95. Because hmm. that, actually, you mentioned started this band in 
38. He actually started 36. Oh, okay. yeah. <clears throat> so right uh, out of Duke. And, yeah. So anyway, he. Uh, so we do this show. It was a two-hour special for PBS, and it was directed by a man named George Barris. And George had done Yanni at the Acropolis. If you saw that show, tremendous director, and uh, we had a great time doing the show. And afterwards. These kids came up to me. I was on the stage wrapping it up, and they said, Mr. Brown, this was our Woodstock. And it was all sweet music. I said, wow, that's something else. That's great. After your father passed away, you took over all the time, full time, as the leader for the Band of Renown. And then you moved to Branson, Missouri. Tell us about the music scene there, and also if any of the original band members are still with you. Well, no, not now, of course, but uh, at the time they were. Now, Dad passed away uh, January 4th, 2001, hmm. and shortly thereafter came, you know, 9-11. Well, he had all these bookings that he had, and you couldn't travel. It was becoming too difficult because we carried 23 people and uh, usually we'd fly somewhere in the Midwest and pick up the bus there and go, you know, 300 miles or 150 miles a day, that kind of thing. So Andy Williams, who had been a close friend, he said, why don't you come to France? And I said, hmm, I thought that was all country music. He says, well, I'm there, you know, and I said, oh, yeah. So I, and Tony Orlando and Glenn Miller band was with Tony Orlando here. And uh, Bobby Benton was here with a big band. So I said, we drove out, actually, my partner and I, my partner who you know, Howard Wolf, we came out here and we looked at it. And at that time, it was just amazing what this town was doing. You'd have a theater of a thousand seats and they'd have 17 to 20 busloads of people every night to come and see the show plus people who just walk up and stuff like that so we made a deal with mickey gilly to do his theater and i did a show here for four years um with mickey and uh, somebody had built a recording studio here that was state-of-the-art and uh, that's where i did the letterman i did two albums with shirley jones here i did uh, one a couple with us you know in the band of renown and uh, some more television. You know, it's just one thing led to another. Branson, I kind of fell in love with it. You know, I, I, I love Los Angeles. I lived there most of my life, as you know. But it was getting a little crowded. So I said, let's move. And we did. We packed everything up, sold everything there, and came here to Branson. And uh, it's, it's a much quieter and a much... And believe it or not, there's a lot of Los Angeles and California expatriates here. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a wonderful place. It really is. I enjoy it very much. Uh, the, the celebrity part of it doesn't catch up with you the same way it does in Los Angeles. Uh, people here are much more approachable. The stars that come in, you know, are just wonderful. Johnny Mathis plays it every year. Uh, gosh, everybody's been here. It's just it's just been a wonderful experience, and uh, kept me kept me out of a lot of trouble in LA. 
That's great. And in addition to leading the band, what projects do you have lined up for the future? We found somebody here who is a muralist, paints murals. And uh, I met him because he asked me to come and emcee the unveiling of a mural that he had done here. And that was to commemorate the uh, 200th anniversary of the national anthem. It's still there. It's perfect. Uh, so we decided one of the things we should do is see if we can't do a TV show about him. He goes into all these little towns all over the Midwest and some of the bigger towns, too. And they ask him to paint murals that are the history of the city. All the things like if it was a mining community or whatever their, the basis of their economy was, they do that. And he paints these murals on the sides of big buildings and everything just to commemorate all that. And they're absolutely magnificent. And he's known as America's muralist. So we're in the process now of doing a pilot for that. And uh, that looks pretty good. We have some sponsorship lined up and the whole deal. Um, we have another one that we're in the midst of putting together. I have two, really. Uh, one of them centers on Branson, and it's kind of a uh, Beverly Hillbillies backwards, where somebody from uh, the entertainment business comes to Branson to do a show, and it's like Green Acres. They come here and they meet all these people, and they don't know. How do they deal with it? give you an example. When I first moved here and I bought this house, we wanted to get Dish Netflix. And so the guy comes out from Dish and this is springtime, right about where it is right now, which is the trout season here, right on the lake where I live. So he's up on the roof and he's looking out on the lake and he sees all the fishermen out there. And I never paid attention. He comes back and he says, you know, Mr. Brown, I, I have parts and things I need. I can't do this today. I'll tell you what. I'll call you when I come back and I get it. We'll put your dish up there. I said, oh, what is she? Okay. No problem. An hour or so later, he's floating on the river right down back of my house with a fishing pole. <laughs> and I said, you know, I looked at my wife and I said, guess what? I don't think they're going to adjust to our schedule. We're going to have to adjust to them. <laughs> and that's kind of what it was, you know. And that's kind of the, the crux. We're in the midst of writing this. And, uh, that sounds terrific. And on that note, we would like to thank Les Brown Jr. for being such a great guest on our Late Boomers podcast. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to add? Maybe a lot of things I couldn't say on a nice show like this. Oh, <laughs> we'll try to leave it like it, that. It was a lot of fun. I'm, like, I'm, I'm, like I'm, that. I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing a book, so when the book comes out, you'll see the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? Great. Oh, that sounds just terrific. And, and Les, if you want to look, look for Les Brown Jr., look him up on Facebook. And thank you so much, Les. Thank you so much. Thank you. Both of you so much for having me, Mary and Kathy. It's been wonderful. I love to talk, as you can tell. And uh, anytime, give me a call. I'm there. I appreciate okay. it very much. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast.